My name is Adam Condit. I'm going to provide the message today. I'm one of our elders here, and I'm actually going to pick up where we left off last time I was up here um, in Colossians 1. So we're going to finish out Colossians 1 today. Uh, Jerry kind of finished out a series. Last week we heard from Eric from Berlin, one of the missionaries that we support here at the bridge. And I'm going to pick up at the end of Colossians 1. His, um, his message and his uh, scripture was actually really relevant to what we're going to dive back into today. Before we go ahead and do that, I'm going to pray, and then we will get going. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us uh, each other. And thank you for giving us reminders that you are all-powerful, and we are so weak. We can't even get the microphone right. We can't even get the slides right. We fail in so many ways, and that's okay. You are God, and we are not. I pray that we would come to your word under the authority of Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us your word, and I pray that we would learn from you and not me. Amen. All right, speaking of learning from me, I have a quick, quick story of my former days as a high school math teacher. Not too many days in the classroom, but one day that I did remember, I'm up there, like high school math, right? So we have a certain level of, um, you know, competency that I assume. And we're talking, math is a language, so I can talk in and out of these different concepts, and it's, it's, it's very normal and natural to talk about an equation in the class that I was teaching, and you're using all kinds of, even like punctuation. You have like parentheses, and you have periods, and you have exponents, and, and you're using this language, and we got to an equation that we're, we're using different variables. And so for those of you that are just totally glazed over and you don't care about high school math anymore, variables can represent numbers. They're letters. Right? So we've got like 3x plus 4y equals 12, right? And we're, we're trying to graph this out and come up with the numbers that are appropriate for the letters. And just in passing, I'm, I'm acting like this is normal to say, what number is x? x is a number, and we want to go get that. y is a number, and I want to go get that. And I notice this kid is just like, like he's like undone. Like he doesn't even know, like he's, he's frozen. And he's just like, X is a number? Like, X is a number? Like, X is a letter, correct? Like, he's, he's going back to his childhood development, and everything's unraveling because he's, his whole foundation of letters and numbers has been blown apart, and he was confused. And, and he didn't put in context where we're starting with unknown numbers with these representations of X and Y, and you could, you could use any representation. I used to tell kids, I'll put, a, I'll, I'll put a picture of a bird in there. Let's find the number for the bird. Like, it doesn't matter. But X, in this case, was a number. X was a number, and that was mind-blowing. And we needed to recalibrate. We needed to go back and go, okay, I, X is a letter. I get it. The alphabet is letters. The numbers are numbers. But in this context, as you get further and further in your math development, and as you go to higher levels of math, we're going to come up on these concepts that seem weird if you were to tell them to a two-year-old. 
that seem weird if you were to tell them to the first grade math classroom, right? And, and, it, and, it, and we got to recalibrate. And I believe Sunday morning in living rooms with other Christians, daily, weekly, monthly, we need to, as Christians, recalibrate. We need, to, we need to go, what assumptions are we working off of, and what does the Bible say about those assumptions? And every once in a while, weekly on Sundays is helpful. I, I've already been challenged to recalibrate with the lyrics in our song today. What's given, and how do we operate out of what do we find is normal? Okay, so we're going to read some, we're going to read some passages today that at first read sound like X is a number. In our culture, it sounds contrary to what we're constantly being told. Let's go to Colossians 1. I took two weeks earlier in the year to go through uh, verses 3 through 14, and then we talked about the preeminence and the glory and the majesty and the, uh, the sovereignty of Christ in 15 through 23. And then we're going to finish out here in four, or excuse me, 24 through 29. We're going to finish out the uh, chapter. So let me just read chapter 1, verse 24. You can go to that next slide. You can go to slide 3. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Okay, we're going to get to more verses, but let's, let's start with one verse. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This is like a, what? Like, I thought X was a letter. I thought suffering was bad. In our culture, our goal, if I could just narrow it down, there's a lot that goes into American culture, there's a lot that goes into the church, there's a lot being said, and God reveals a lot in his word, right? What I see as not helpful from the culture that we find ourselves in, in, in America, is the goal ultimately can be comfort. We can mistake comfort for happiness. And this verse says, no, I find, or now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's a mystery. That's a mystery that we need to look into, that we need to have better teaching on, better revelation from the Spirit, ultimately. That's a mystery. And, and the title of, of today's um, sermon is Mysteries in Ministry. We come up on these things in Scripture that grinds against our human nature. It's like you come up on something that talks about suffering but joy at the same time, or even a, a joy in the long run. In the big picture, there's suffering and there's joy. And you say, that doesn't sit with how I want my day to go. I want to pray for a calm, cool, collected, comfortable day. There's another one in here. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. This is difficult to read if we read it wrongly. There's something lacking in Christ's work at the cross is what Paul is implying here. Okay, 
we got to put our thinking caps on. We have to know what he's talking about. The finished work of the cross is finished. And when I say the finished work that happened on the cross, his atoning work to save us is done. But there is a work that Christians do that is going to bring that suffering, bring Christ's sufferings, bring Christ's work to other people. Let me, let me read through a couple verses here that just sets the stage for what should be normal in the Christian life, which is not normal in our affluent culture. Okay, and that's, that's essentially being persecuted and, and suffering and having that not be weird. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 10, 21, brother will deliver up brother to death and father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. John 16, 2, the hour is coming when whoever kills you believe they are offering service to God. Christians have been killed in the name of other gods before. Absolutely. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians 1.29, It has been granted to you, it has been given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 2 Timothy talks about sharing in Christ's sufferings, which is what we're, we're going to get to as well today. In Acts, they talked about the apostles rejoicing for, it was count, for they were counted worthy to even be shamed for the name of Jesus. So we, I think we need to recalibrate and remember. The Bible is full of this category called suffering and persecution, and joy is in there as well. Now, this doesn't mean that we're happy and we have a big smile on our face when someone wants to endanger us. This is a deeper joy. This is an everlasting promise that we will have everlasting life. So I don't want to cheapen danger, suffering. I don't want to cheapen essentially what God calls us into. He calls us into a deep joy, which is a mystery. It's a mystery. And we want to look into these mysteries of what the Christian walk actually is. Let me land here on Hebrews 10, uh, 32 through 34. You don't need to turn there. Hebrews 10 is helpful for me just to recalibrate. When I, when I hear about um, the early church, and their hard struggles of sufferings. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, when you were, became Christians and when you were filled with the Spirit, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. This is completely contrary to that prosperity gospel that says, follow God and get these worldly gifts, and, and your sufferings will go down. You... Receive God's gifts, and your sufferings go down. That's not biblical. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard suffering, a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those that were treated that way. For you had compassion on those in prison. Your friends are in prison. This is the early church. You might be in prison. And you joyfully accept, you didn't, handed over begrudgingly, you didn't throw a fit on Facebook, you joyfully uh, uh, accepted the plundering 
of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now that's important. That's important to understand our suffering here in a temporal world, even though 10 years go by and that feels like a long time, 15 years go by, three hours go by in our suffering here, it feels like a long time, 80 years go by. We have a better possession. We have something better forever. So we do need to keep in context this suffering. It's temporal, and we're actually called into it. Okay, so how do we get there? How do we, how do we just... It's easy to read this and not have it in us to just suffer well. And suffering can look like a hundred different things. I'm not going to get into all that. The early church was having their lives threatened. They're having their lives threatened. I want to touch on what does it mean to have joy in suffering? What does it mean to be filled with God's Spirit and after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle? Yesterday, my family and I went to a cross-country meet out in Colfax. It's the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire actually hosted the regional cross-country meet. So in, in a week from now, they're actually going to run the national cross-country meet. And we're at this big meet, right? And that's a, that's a scene that I'm familiar with. But you could also take this into football. You could take this into a lot of sports. You're there, and the gun goes off, and the race starts. And I'm thinking, this whole event, this 25-minute race for these ladies and these guys running around, is basically a display of suffering. It is strange for us to go park our cars, pay money, and watch these people suffer. What happens when the gun goes off? Do, we go, does, do the moms run on the field? Do the friends run on the field? No, no, this is, let's resist this. Let's minimize the suffering. What are we doing out here? The point of our lives is to be comfortable, and they don't look very comfortable in 25 degrees running as hard as they can. I saw a guy puking his guts out at the end. This is applauded. We are cheering them on. This happens on the football field. The goal line is here, and the road to the goal line is going through suffering, i.e., people that want to tackle you and hurt you and bruise you and stop you. The road to glory is through pain and suffering. Everyone wants the finish line picture, and people are cheering like crazy, especially at the finish line. Take this another step. Every analogy breaks down somewhere, right? Take this another step. Everyone loves game day and being in the stands at Lambeau Field and cheering on when we get a touchdown. That's what we think of when we say we like football. If you're on the team, you're probably doing suffering throughout the week that people don't see. This is our culture, is to highlight the goal line and to highlight the finish line and to minimize and put away and not think about what these folks have gone through all along the week. We're cheering on the sufferers. This is the Christian life. The road to glory for Christ ultimately, and we're going to see for us as well, the road to glory is through the cross. The road to glory is through suffering. This is the blueprint of the Christian life. And so what God does is he doesn't just, what he doesn't do is just come down, 
live his life, be persecuted, essentially be hated to a point where he is killed by his own people and expose his glory and then expect something different from us. Let's read again. Actually, you know what? 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, and then we're going to go back to Colossians. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do not sign up for the football team after you've been enlightened, after you've been on the team, and then be surprised that you're expected to be at practice and have it be painful twice a day in the summer. That would be weird for you to be on the team and expect there to be an increase of comfort now that you're on the team. This is the Christian life. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Do not be surprised at the pain you'll go through at practice during the game upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening. It's not strange to be on the football team and go through those persecutions. Those are just little pictures, right? Those sufferings, those physical ailments, those physical pain, right? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice that you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay. This is very close to what Colossians is saying. Christ has sufferings, and he doesn't just do that so we do not have sufferings. He certainly saves us into eternal glory, and there will be a day when all suffering is gone and all tears are wiped away. In this temporal life, before Christ returns, Christ had sufferings, which led to glory. We have sufferings, which leads to glory. And America won't tell you that. America will tell you to drive that suffering down so the glory can increase. And what God is saying through his word is that your suffering might increase for there to be an increase of glory. The road to glory is through pain. That doesn't mean that we live a completely disheveled life and everything is pain and for naught. That doesn't mean that. God certainly blesses us. Everything we have is from him. The reason we all woke up in the morning and put our shoes on is because God kept us alive. The reason that we have kids around, the reason that we have jobs, the reason that we have resources to pay for food, this is a good life in Wisconsin in 2021. So I want us to recalibrate and see there is a certain amount of Christianity that will not get you fired from your job if you work hard, which is biblical. There's a certain amount of Christianity that says don't be drunk and wine that will probably help you keep your job and keep your marriage more functional than if you did get drunk. There's a certain amount of functional Christianity that will keep your life better. But is that the ultimate goal? Is to put our head on the pillow and increase our comfort. It's not. It's not. It's biblical to seek out what suffering might God have for me for a particular joy that he ha also has for me. The goal line, the touchdown would not have happened if the pain and the bruising didn't happen in the plays prior. It wouldn't have happened. You don't just get a magical wand of glory. It goes through suffering. All right, I've belabored this point. We're on verse 24 still, okay? Here's the point. There's a suffering mystery that Christianity 
has with joy. There's a joy and a suffering that go together. It is for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And you can't tell me that we don't actually believe this. In sports, I've, always, I've already tried to demonstrate this. Even when it comes to raising a family, you can't tell me that there's a, a certain suffering, there's a certain pouring out, there's a certain giving up of financial resources, of time, of energy, of your own hobbies, of this and that, to have something else thrive. And there's joy in that. There's joy in raising a family. There's joy in being in a sacrificial relationship, maybe with a spouse or even coworkers or your friends or your city. There's joy in that. Okay, so there, we see that around us, but sometimes it's helpful to recalibrate. All right, let's go back to um, Colossians. I want to touch back on, I want to touch back on essentially where we're at with filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. How, how can you say that, Paul? How can you say that? I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Okay, Christ's atoning work is done. It's paid for. We're sinners. He's not. He's perfect. We are not. We need a solution to the problem, which is we have separation from God. This is Gospel 101. Christ comes down, enters human history, and pays our debt through the suffering road of the cross. He is paid for all sins, and it's enough. The work has been finished. Okay? Now, we live in 2021. We didn't see that with our own eyes. That happened. It's enough. God chooses to work through a thousand different means for other people to see that beautifully. So there's the ends and there's the means. God has finished his perfect work at the cross, and now there needs to have stuff happen. He's ordained things to happen, like prayer, like Bible reading, like the Spirit indwelling us, like other Christians speaking to us, like missions, and like Christians putting on display for the world to see how we deal with this thing called suffering. How does our world deal with suffering? I woke up this morning and looked at the snow, and the first thought in my mind was, oh, I have to shovel. How do we view discomfort? It's so easy to complain. It's so easy to be bogged down by our suffering. It is so easy to enter, and I, I do not want to minimize suffering. Grief is not the same as suffering. Grief is even what Jesus experienced. These pain points are in our life to display to a watching world, not that we can just turn on happy music and smile and have a, and have a cheap joy, but that over time, over prayer, by God's grace, we can approach it differently than what our human flesh wants to do. This is a ministry tool to show the world that we are in Christ's sufferings. Christ has suffered. We are called to suffer and I don't know what that looks like in your life. I barely know what it looks like in my life half the time. We are called to be in the spirit to suffer well. Okay. If we don't catch a vision of this, a lot of the rest of the world doesn't make sense. We're, we're in Disneyland. We're in America where we can coast into Christianity and different streams of just playing the part, and, and suffering can actually be viewed as something 
improper and undeserving to us by God, I would encourage you to go to persecution.com. If you've heard of the Voice of the Martyrs, that whole ministry is centered around displaying the persecuted Christian church. And it's not just what happened in the New Testament. It's not just what happened in Hebrews. It's happening right now. It is sobering. It's hard for me to read that in my living room with a comfortable blanket on as it's 40 degrees outside. It's hard to, to hear this. There's a whole podcast. Listen to the stories of a 13-year-old that saw her preaching missionary father be killed in front of their tribe. And it would be wrong to say she was happy that happened in her life, but she is filled with a greater, deeper joy than she can talk about it on this podcast and see the goodness of God spark revival in that tribe. It's sobering. There was, a, there, was recently a, um, there was recently a story of someone that was persecuted over in a country I won't name because they didn't name it on the podcast. And essentially what happened was they thought they were threatened because this person was spreading the gospel. And they put him in prison, and uh, he's basically praying for the prison guards. And an outbreak of COVID happens in the prison. And he's actually allowed a phone call once a month, he calls his parents, and they're freaking out, and they're seeing, like, you know, what's, what's he doing day to day? And he, he, kept, he kept directing them back to, we need ventilators. We need help. Guards have COVID. We have COVID. The, like, the prison is not in a good place. So his parents basically orchestrated ventilators to be brought to the prison, and the prison guards are sitting there, and these people are walking up with ventilators, and they're, they're confused, first of all, how they got them. And they're also confused on where they're coming from. And they described that cellmate XYZ, the guy that you've been beating every day, told us to bring ventilators to you. This prisoner approaches his suffering in a different way than I probably would have in that situation. I'd be disgruntled with God. I probably would be questioning why I'm even there in the first place, my security, my safety. He took the opportunity to bless those who were bruising him. And that, what do, you th what do you think that did? That exposed why he's really there. See, they thought he was a political threat because he's talking about Christianity, and they, they saw that as a political threat, as a power play. And they realized really quickly, when he got them ventilators, he cares about them, not their ideology. He cares about their soul for eternity. And the way that he approached his suffering was, hey, maybe I'm going to be here 10 days, maybe 10 years, maybe till I die. But these people have COVID, and I want to help their bodies. The way that he, preached, the way that he approached suffering was so different that they like, it was a X is a number moment for them. Their whole conception of who this person was and what Christianity was completely changed. All right. Let's move on. Let's go to slide four. We're going to look at verse 25 and verse 27, or verse 25, 26, 27. I'm going to reveal a couple more mysteries. Okay, there's two more mysteries I want to see. Two more mysteries in verse 25, 26, and 27. I'm just going to read it here. This is kind of like, this whole section that I've been talking about is about Paul's ministry. Now, I spent a lot of time on that first 
that first verse because I wanted to set the stage for how Christians approached ministry. They approach ministry as something that they dug into, that's dirty, that's, that's unsafe even. Okay? Now, here's the ministry. Like, why is Paul, what's Paul's mission? What's our church's mission? Like, what are we doing? Verse 25 through 27, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This is what we're doing to our lost brothers and sisters. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Okay, a couple more mysteries. This is, this is shocking to this culture that says we have this Jewish Messiah that we're expecting. And he's not just going to come and save the Jews. He's going to come through the new covenant and not have this bloodline salvation. He's going to have this new spiritual, new covenant salvation for all people, for Jews and Gentiles. That's a mystery. That was shocking. And part of me says, hey, at the end of verse 25, the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So God gives the power. God gives Paul his mission, right? And he's being faithful. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So God has essentially hidden this mystery. He's waited for the right time and the right place and for Jesus to come as the Messiah to reveal. So is it Paul that's revealing or is it Jesus that's revealing? Is it God? Like who gets to reveal? God is empowering his people to reveal these mysteries at the right time. At the right time. So God is in control of all of this, but he's using his people to reveal how mysterious he is to what our flesh says is what's right. This has a connotation and, a, and an action for us to consider the other, right? The other, the, the, the Jews and Gentiles. Like, if you're a Jew in that time, time frame, the Gentiles would be viewed as unclean. They were the other. There's many examples of the other that we can see in our culture. The other gender, the other side of the political aisle, the other race, like this has huge implications. And it grinds against our human nature to not be comfortable with those that are similar to us with similar interests. We gravitate towards people that are probably our same age category, that probably enjoy the same things as us. That's just a social reality that it's easier to get along sometimes with folks that are more similar to us. And God and Christianity is giving us this mystery that says, no, it's for the other. Reach out to the other. Get to know the other. This is still very relevant. Still very relevant. That's one mystery. The other mystery, which we could talk about for another 10,000 years, and I still don't get it fully, Christ in us. This is similar to him saying, I have sufferings, and now Christ in us produces sufferings. There's such a communion of Christians with Christ that the best way that we can even say it is Christ in us. I in them and him in me. Christ in us, just as the Son is in the Father, there's Christ in us. This is a mystery. This is a Christ mystery. Okay? We're going to go to the next slide. We're going to go to the next slide. We're kind of flying here, but I want to land here. I want to land 
where there's more tension. There's, more, there's actually more tension. Verse 28 and 29. So how do we do this? How do we reveal God's mysteries? Do we just set up the perfect programming for our culture? Do we set up the perfect schedule of our, of our hospitality you know, calendar? How do we engineer God's work? <laughs> That's how my brain works. Okay, just tell me what to do so I can do the right thing and have the right schedule, and then I know I'm in the will of God. Okay? So this is kind of getting to the point of how do we do ministry? How does Paul call all these different cultures? He, he did so much ministry in different churches, and he sent so many letters. So how is he calling people to do ministry in their culture? How is he doing this? Let me read 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. I'm actually going to touch on verse 29 first. Keep looking at verse 29. There's this tension once again. We toil, we struggle, we work, we do things through his energy and power. God's work is finished at the cross. We are not working for our neighbors for their salvation. It has been finished. If God calls them to salvation, that atoning, finished, final work has been done at the cross. And he uses us to reveal his goodness. There's God's work and our work, certainly. And it's helpful to know the difference. It's helpful to know I can rest at night, even if they don't take root in what I'm saying. God's work is ultimately what's providing gasoline to the engine. He's giving us power. I, I kind of have this little analogy. Maybe it's not helpful. I think of ourselves as a car, and we've got resources, and we can use the trunk, and we can use the passenger seat, and we can bring stuff to people, and we can essentially have our mission and do things in a church like growth groups and worship and hospitality and a hundred different other things, or you can have... You can have different philosophies of ministry to do things. What are we doing for people that are lost? What are we doing for each other to encourage one another? We certainly do things. It the car will not move without gas in the engine. God's work is to provide power. God's work is to provide capability. And we certainly drive the car and do stuff. Okay, so this is helpful for me to know the difference. God's work is done and it's finished, and he also powerfully works through us. So we toil, we struggle. We don't just say God's in control of everything, and so I'm going to sit back and chill and do nothing. He does work through everything. He does work through the means of Christians showing what it means to struggle and have pain in their life. He does work through the Christians showing what it means to tell people about Jesus through a hundred other things that we could talk about. God's work is done through means of grace. And he's invited us into that. So that's exciting. Let's actually go back up to verse 28. At the root of it all, if you don't listen to anything else I've said, this is Paul's ministry. This is his approach to saving lost souls. Him we proclaim. He toils and struggles and does stuff. And he goes on trips and he, he calls us to do things. And he also proclaims Christ. He, in a, in a sense, gets out of the way. We do not put ourselves on display. I can't even work the microphone well when I come up. We are so weak. 
I have my shortcomings. You have your shortcomings. Paul had his shortcomings. And he started a lot of ministry in a lot of areas of the world. Him we proclaim. Who is him? Jesus on the cross. The cross is where these mysteries start to come into focus a little bit more. I can understand a little bit better pain and suffering and joy when I look at the cross. I can understand dying for the other, folks that are not just of a different race than us, not just of a different political preference, not just of a different political, I already said that, not just of a different age of us. There's all kinds of preferences. And there's a couple that are always talked about in the media, but what about ageism? Our discipleship, I think the local church could be revolutionary in this. How easy it is, how easy it is for me as a 30-something to always hang out with 30-somethings and even get my discipleship through 30-somethings. The local church is a place that I can look to someone that's in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and have them pour into me and have great, re I mean, the experience and the knowledge and the wisdom that we should be looking up the chain toward and then pouring down as well. This is a place that that can happen, that it rarely happens in other parts of our culture. We can gravitate towards our own or we can gravitate towards others. What does Christ do on the cross? People are killing him. Jews, Gentiles, the religious higher-ups, the mob, and he is pouring out. He is serving. This is where it comes into focus a little bit of this mystery of the other, how do we include and serve the other? Those that earn totally different amounts of money than us. Their houses look totally different. They don't have a house. This is helpful for me to see what Jesus did. Unfortunately, we don't proclaim him all the time. Even in our Christian, comfortable lives, have you ever had a, uh, a song on the radio come on that you're glad your kid wasn't in the car when it came on? Or maybe your kid's in the car and you got to shut it off? I had that this week. I took my kid to middle school earlier in the morning, so he's got to go to school a little bit earlier than his siblings. I took him to school and then turned on the radio because we, we are trying to talk more in the morning, so we, we talk, we're trying to not be groggy, talk. How's the day going to go? What are you looking forward to? Etc. He leaves, goes to middle school. I turn on the radio, and the song came on. And I listened to all the lyrics, as my dad was, has taught me my whole life. Lyrics matter more than the music. So the music style wasn't my preference, but I started to listen to these lyrics, and I'm kind of picking it apart. I want to build four walls, keep you safe inside, and catch you when you fall. Don't want to see you cry. That seems pretty normal, normal reaction for us to have with our kids to protect them. I, God calls us to protect our kids. This is hopefully helpful to keep kids safe when they're especially a lot younger. And when you walk down the street, make you hold my hand. I want to lift you off your feet, be your Superman. And I feel that pull to be everything in my kid's life, to be the, the Superman. And so again, this, is, this first verse maybe is 
written for those really younger years when all they kind of know is what, what's being provided to them. But see, God, me, and him have a promise, and he'll give us everything we need. I'm still optimistic about this song at this point. I say, well, maybe when he said, God, me, and him have a promise, it means I'm totally dead and God brings me alive and he reveals his promise that he'll keep and I'll continue to fail at. It's not just me and God going into the back room and having a discussion and having an agreement and I'm going to go talk to my kid about the agreement that God and I have, which is to give us everything we need. And I'm just going to assume this guy means everything we need, which is Christ alone. I'm just going to assume that this guy means everything we need. When you go to prison for preaching the gospel, you still have Christ, and you might even be killed in front of your 13-year-old, which is on the website, voiceofthemartyrs.com. They had everything they needed. They were so secure in their freedom in Christ that they died in front of their family. Now, God's not calling everyone to that. And then the song had a little tension, like every good song has. I'm going, yes, give me the tension. Our world has tension. Disappointment and pain, and you'll flirt with the shame. So you call me from the end of your rope. All right, now we have the kid at the end of their rope. They have shame, they have pain, they have disappointment, like everyone will have. And I'll give you whatever I have, but there's only one thing you'll need. Tell me. Tell me the one thing we all need when we have shame, disappointment, and pain. Please tell me. This is the Christian radio station. Let's go. And that's love. I'll give you my love, my love. I'll give you my love as, as the dad. I'm so glad my kid wasn't in the car. I would have shut it off. Now, I think this is a great parenting song, and this is family-friendly radio because there weren't any swear words, and that's fine. But this is not what I want to teach my kids. Because they see me fail, they see me at the end of my rope, and if their only hope is to come to dad and ask for his love, I fail more often than not. They need Christ. We proclaim Christ. The Condit household says, Christ, I'm not enough. I want my kids to know I will not satisfy them. It is not okay for us to raise kids, for us to tell our neighbors that all they need is us. It's not true. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. But this is not total heresy. It's just not a complete picture of what God has for us. They see me fail. I see them fail. We're a bunch of sinners living together. And yes, there's more wisdom in people that have probably lived longer. And yes, they need to key off of me. But I need to key off of Christ. And at a certain age, this isn't just parenting. At a certain point in our relationships, we need to show people that we are keying off of Christ and we proclaim him. This song didn't say Jesus once. Okay. I want to describe a different song that we're about to sing, which is more helpful. And I'm about out of time here. I'm done. But what we're about to sing with communion is something that's more helpful, I think. Come behold the wondrous mystery. I'm just going to read verse 3, but we're going to sing them all. At the cross of Christ is where these things were reality and purpose and this mystery of this broken, sinful, suffering life start to make sense. 
So that's what I want to highlight to my friends, my neighbors, my kids. Otherwise, it's just mysterious. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory. This is weird to people that don't believe God is good. We have a God that's on a cross dying for us. And they say, show us that you're God by coming off the cross. Show us your power. You say you're God. Why are you up on the cross? And he says, I will show you I am God by staying on the cross. It's been so helpful for me when a preacher told me that difference. That is the main difference between them, between us and him. He is displaying his glory by being on the cross, by being suffering, by knowing it's God's will, by knowing there's a greater joy afterwards. This is where suffering is in a clearer focus for me. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. So what we're going to do, I know I didn't give you a nice checklist of things to do this week and what schedule you should share with your neighbors and your coworkers. What I want us to do this week as we go and as we take communion is to behold God on the cross. I want us to recalibrate and see how strange our Christian worldview is to our watching world. We can't pretend it's not, otherwise we just get comfortable. We need to be approachable. We need to have wisdom. What does it mean to be on mission? I certainly don't want to yell and uh, be this emotional in every conversation I have, but I do want us to behold the mystery. We're going to take communion. I'll have the worship team come on up, please. Communion is a time that we can remember and recalibrate. Christ's body was ripped apart for us. The bread represents that. So even as we tear the bread, some, some churches, we have the wafers here, but you're going you're gonna to take the bread. Some churches have actual bread where it rips apart. We believe God poured out his body and it was ripped apart for us. That's a remembrance. That's a reminder. So this communion is for Christians that people, people profess that God is who he is and they put their faith in him. Okay? The juice, the wine in communion is to remember his blood spilt. And we want to look at the cross and not just turn away at something that seems ugly, but behold this wondrous mystery. We're talking about blood and sacrifice and joy. And I don't know if I've explained it very well today, but God, I do pray. I pray that we would get out of the way and that you would just move, God. I feel as though you need to take over here. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us the cross. I pray that we would come and examine our hearts, God, before we take communion, that we are right with you, we are right with others. Thank you for giving us your son, God. I pray that we would key off of him and him alone. Amen.